Hello and welcome back to the Breathing Deeply Yoga Therapy and Meditation Podcast with Brant Pasalakwa, founder of the Breathing Deeply Yoga Therapy and Meditation School. In this podcast, we answer our students' questions and share information about yoga therapy and meditation with the intention of creating a new paradigm in wellness. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's dive into the show. Today's episode is a recording taken directly from a live Q&A with Breathing Deeply founder Bryant Pasalakwa and students inside our meditation program. Our first question is, how do you guide people on dual versus non-dual yoga philosophy as a meditation mentor? So the way we're going to learn to do that is to have people practice and then the philosophy sort of supports it. Questions naturally arise in people as they get quieter and are doing this investigation. And then one or another point of view will probably be more useful. I mean, actually, my teacher taught me both on purpose, (laughs) you know, because I'm me, I guess, you know, so that could happen too. But it's not like Maybe this will help answer your question. So I've worked with people who had meditated in a tradition for a while and they felt stuck. And what I glean from talking to them is that their orientation, let's say a, a dualistic orientation was no longer serving them. Like they had gotten to a, to a place where it just wasn't working and they were feeling frustrated and demotivated. So I helped them begin to understand the other point of view, but that was a strategy, right? It's like a strategy to help somebody kind of unstick. It's all true. Like you have to, or the other way to look at it is as the Tao says, the Tao that could be named is not the Tao. Like, it's not like, this is all ideas, right? This, this is all philosophy. It's orientation, but it's not the thing. So it's a tool, you know, as a general rule, you know, most people, if they're beginning meditators, you're going to start with a dualistic framework for them because that's what they're experiencing. And it's going to be like a reach, Right. Like, if you just say, like, it's all good, man, you know, like, it doesn't, it's, it's a nice thing, but it doesn't really hit, you know, in a way that's gonna really help you when you're suffering, because you're like, I'm not experiencing it as good. Um, so you might pick up the yoga sutras and glean a couple of points from the yoga sutras. And if we're looking at this one is that there's a kind of order or progression we can do things. And that's going to be really helpful um, to us. So, I mean, one of the, in my mind, the most genius thing about the yoga sutras is the path it lays out because like most meditation texts don't do this. So it says, hey, you know, yamas and yamas, and then sort of take care of your body and then um, do some pranayama. It has all these like, what you could say are preparatory practices, but they're really just, if you look at them in the most liberal view, it's gonna be really hard to meditate if your body's a mess. It's gonna be really hard to meditate if you're like a reverse breather. Um, you know, it's, that's going to maybe dif- be difficult for you, you know, if your nervous system is a certain way. 
it's going to be really difficult for you to meditate if you haven't experienced the withdrawal of the senses, which is one of those steps. Like if you're always going external and reaching for every sound and sight, like it's going to be really hard for you to meditate. So let's do some practices around that first. And then it's going to be really hard for you to meditate if you can't concentrate on something. If like even that idea of focusing on something sends your mind into a, a like complete <laughs> panic, like that skill is going to need to be developed. I mean, this is where like a lot of, you know, and, and in our system, what we might say is like, if we can't develop a tranquility state, we can't really do anything else after that. It's going to be hard to feel your oneness with all things if you can't sit for 15 minutes and feel relatively okay, <laughs> right? So, you know, that's where most people start and you can go very far with it because it just keeps going. But Patanjali things like keeps going all the way to enlightenment. So you can certainly stay there. But there's a point where um, bringing in concepts of like things aren't one way or another. They're both or everything's the same. These kinds of big circular concepts that make our mind melt can be important because it gets us out of our regular patterns and thinking states. So you could look at the Spandarakita just as that. Study that text, keep studying it, and keep sort of thinking about it because it'll help you not think in the exact same way. And then there's an, a more advanced concept, which is, I believe, that you need both of these concepts if you're going to really be an advanced meditator, if you want to call it that, or like really go for this self-knowledge and merging thing, because it is, it's very hard to get tied to one way of looking at things and let go of everything, right? Like those two ideas don't match. Like, you know, surrendering to everything while believing that there's only one way to do it <laughs> is not is not a real match. One thing that might help to remember for everybody is that humans turn everything into dogma. Like that's what we do. So it's like you hang out with any text long enough, you're gonna, you're probably, you are going to turn it into the way things are. <laughs> you know, and that's when you know you're slightly off track. How can I reconcile desire with a non-dualistic point of view? Well, the non-dualistic point of view says desire. What it really says is everything is a vehicle. A great word, right? Everything is a vehicle towards what you're trying to do, right? Which is, we're just going to say merge with nature. We'll use that for now, right? So desire is that. So you've got two choices from those two points of views. You can ignore your desire, which is limitless. So you say, desire, man, no matter how many cookies I eat, you want another damn cookie, right? So enough with you. I'm done with you. Witness, I'm, I'm creating space from you because you're not really helping me. <laughs> what the non-dualist would say is, fall all the way in and become completely present with that desire. 
And when you do, magic is going to happen. You're going to put the cookie in your mouth and you're going to realize that not only is the cookie the best thing you've ever tasted, but it wasn't your desire in the first place because merging with nature is your desire. And I can even do that while eating a cookie. They're not. So it's just a matter of like how you're orienting to them. You know, is it bad or not useful? Bad's kind of harsh, but like not particularly useful to me at this time. Or can I orient in a way where it's totally okay? Like my thoughts and feelings and all the things that are happening inside me are part of nature. Because as the Tao says, good and bad, hard and easy, right? Want the cookie, don't want the cookie. Nothing exists. They all exist together. So why are we pushing it away? So it's a matter of your strategy in a way. Is your strategy going to be to push it away for now so that you can like pay some attention to other stuff? Or is your strategy going to be to be 100% present? with that desire and desire in tantra is the thing like desire is the thing because we all have so many desires the tantricas are like their argument is you've got so many desires you better learn to use them right you better get real comfortable and understand that all desire comes from the same place the cookie the wanting money, the wanting your hair to be a different color, everything, the wanting to be loved, it's all the same. And so what you have to do is like, let yourself ride those desires back to the source. And that's why the non-dualistic point of view is often the first stop because it's way easier to understand, right? Because it's, it's really easy to understand yeah, I know you want the cookie, just don't eat the cookie. You're like, okay. <laughs> you know? I can understand that. Like, I don't have to be a philosophy major to understand this concept. Is the philosophy of the Spanda Karikas helpful for addiction? Like, I, like, lots of people, right, are alcoholics and they go to AA for 10 years and, you know, they're like, I'm still an alcoholic. I never have a drink because that would be really bad. And here's my framework. Then it might be right? Like a really interesting concept that these desires are okay. And there's another part, since you asked about addiction, that's interesting, which is that if you get completely okay and, and can relax in your meditation practice into that all desires come from the same place, they don't have much hold on you anymore. And then it just becomes about choice. So a word that's used a lot is freedom in that context. We're free to choose whether we have a drink or not, whether we do anything or not. But the question really is, are we making choices or are we sort of driven by our desires? Because we're always going to, like the reality is you're going to choose to do something, right? <laughs> you're going to do things, but the it becomes, we're going to talk about action and non-action probably next, but it becomes non-action when it's just a free choice. You're not being dragged or carried by anything. You're, you're, you have an understanding you know, of your spiritual nature and you're just making choices. And I'm choosing to buy Nikes instead of Adidas, you know? 
it's not because I like need them. It's like I have this desire for Nikes because I saw too many ads as a kid or whatever. And that's fine. I understand it all. It's not a big deal either way. Is it better to study one yoga text at a time or study different philosophies together? Yes, there's a, <laughs> there's a utility to understanding each one in itself. I mean, my general suggestion would be, and whether you want to do more than one at a time, I guess is up to you. But for most people, it would be easier to, I'm trying to do it through concepts and showing you how the concepts play out in all the texts. That's what I'm going to do. Um, but in terms of text study, it's probably good to get into a text and understand it. You never really under, fully understand these texts, right? But at least get the general idea. Then you look at another one. Then maybe you compare them. Like what's the same and different? There's lots of similarities between the Yoga Sutras and the Spanda Creek if you're a practitioner. Because we're not philosophers, right? We're just plain old meditators around here. And what you're going to find is that there's a lot of similarity between them. So that's really beneficial too. Um, but what's really landed for me is like, how does this concept work with these different kinds of points of view? So all that said, the, um, the Bhakti Sutras are about like devotion to God and the experience of loving God and surrender, basically. Um, so that's a, in a way, everything's the same in this way. It's a dualistic, and that's a good thing, like I said before, because that's how our brain works, naturally. So it's sort of reminding you, I like that book because it's just like a huge reminder. It's it's a love book. It's 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 encouraging you to love God, but it's really about love itself and um, using the God concept to do that. Because it's hard just to love without an object for our dualistic minds. So that's where it sits. I mean, in the end, everything becomes non-dual. If that helps. Like even Patabajali's Yoga Sutras, like when you're done, <laughs> right, it's all good. So you're in this non-dual land, but it's, it's more of a matter of how we're getting there. <laughs> so the Bhakti Sutras are encouraging this practice, right, of, of loving. And God is a really good, unless you have sort of religious trauma, but if, if you put that over here for a minute, this concept of God being something like giant, bigger than yourself, and something you can direct and have a relationship with. It's, it's getting us to do that and reminding us that, and that's what the third part of our meditation system is, is alluding to, which is without this love, surrender, peace, you won't get where you want to go. You'll never really understand yourself because one way to look at it in a dualistic way is you are love. So how are you going to understand yourself if you don't experience it? And love with people, you can, the Spandarakita would say, it doesn't say this, but I guess if it talked, it would say, yeah, I guess you could do it with people. You could do it with anything. But God's a little cleaner, right? Like God doesn't forget to take out the trash. Like this, this thing you're having a relationship with, 
you know, is, <laughs> is you having a relationship with you. <laughs> so you're going to be able to, you're going to be able to kind of um, pull off this spiritual adventure a little easier. Uh, how you study them. There's a lot of different ways to study them. So if you study too many things, most people won't really take any of them in. So I'll just put that out there. So, you know, this is a course, but you're going to work with these books for years, hopefully. The Bhakti Sutras and those concepts like keep your practice alive and juicy. It keeps it real. Because without the, the relational love angle, it'll get dry on you. That might take one, two, five, 10, 20 years, but it will get dry on you. You'll be sitting in meditation and you'll say to yourself, I have no idea why I'm doing this. <laughs> that might have happened to you already. Like, I literally have no idea. What am I doing? And again, maybe a little more advanced in that. In the beginning, you're like, I know why I'm doing this. Speaking for myself, not you. I'm nuts. Like, I don't want, you know what I mean? Like, I wake up in the morning and my thought processes are not okay. So I'm going to like turn on that app with the music and like do what they told me to do because I want things to go better, right? But you can imagine if you haven't done this yet, if you meditate for 15 years, you know, and you get through that part, you might still have some of that, but you know, you feel like relatively sane and you're not being tortured by your own mind on a daily basis. The Bhakti Sutras kind of reminds us, right? It's like, hey, you know, there's something, there's, there's way more, there's way more than just getting out of our pain and suffering. That's not what knowing yourself is all about. It's just like a step or an outcropping. So as we like sort of contemplate and begin to think about helping other people, right? You can start to see how you have to know who you're talking to, to be. So I like to use the word mentor, because that's what really what, what meditation teachers are. They're mentors. They're like, how can I, how can I help you? Based on my experience, it's like, it's not just about teaching the techniques of meditations. It's like, who are you, right? And where are you at? They're like, I'm someone who wakes up every morning and feels like my mind is hitting me in the face with a hammer. I'm like, okay, I think we're in the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali right now. And I think there's a few concepts that might help you. And here's a couple of meditations that might help you, right? Let's, let's see if we can achieve what Patanjali says we can achieve, which is, more contentment right, through these practices. What is the goal of spiritual practice if it isn't enlightenment? Patanji points out, like uh, in a lot of translations, you'll see like the chosen goal, which I always loved. It's definitely in the Bakunda Styles translation because I always love seeing them. Um, because we have lots of different goals. Language is not good for this process. So, um, you know, people will say to know yourself, to merge with God, to merge with nature, like to understand my spiritual nature, to alleviate suffering, go beyond suffering. But of course, these are goals from the perspective we're sitting in right now. So if you think of, um, and in the dualistic and out of like the sort of Patanjali world, which is, you know, related to Hinduism, it's like a mysticism out of Hinduism, it's to, to get out of um, 
samskara. It's like to get out of like this constant state of rebirth and having to go through <laughs> all these things and in, in order for you to learn them. So from that perspective, it's to it's to end that cycle, um, which is a really nice way to think about it. Because even if you're you're not um, from that philosophy, you know, weren't brought up that way, you know, getting out of our patterns, you know, getting out of our reoccurring patterns that don't benefit us. Um, but what I wanted to say is that it, I think it might be important to remember that your articulation of sort of merging with spirit will change as you have different experiences in meditation. So I could tell you what my goal is as this person with this set of circumstances, with this much meditation under my belt, and it'll probably be a little different than yours, you know? And what a lot of teachers do and texts do is kind of like throw, throw, throw a, they kind of throw us a bone. They say, here's the goal. Here's the goal. You know, so in the yoga sutras, it's, it's to get out of, and Buddhism too, it's like, if you're going to get out of all this suffering, you know, the goal is to get out of it. The goal is to, to not be in a state of suffering, whether that's, you know, probably early on, we think that's changing our circumstances. And then as we evolve, we realize it's understanding the way things are. So they don't bother us as much. The Bhakti Sutras or Hafiz or any of these like ecstatic people would say it's to merge with God and, and experience the, the bliss that's, um, they say this in yoga sometimes too, like the bliss that's your birthright. You know, or the love to experience love and fully, etc. But they're just words. So they're meaningful to you or they're not at any given time. But all those things I just said, I would sign up for, you know, personally. I, I, they all sound like a good idea. So that's how I got into meditation. Once I started learning about spiritual practice, I was like, yeah, these, I want, I want these things that you're talking about. Like, that sounds like a good idea. It doesn't seem like my life is, is as big and awesome as you're explaining. So, so bring it on. But again, you might start just by being like, I'm addicted to television and beer. Like, this can't be it. Like, you know, and so the goal of meditation is to not be addicted to meditation and beer. And then it changes. And then... You know, some people will also look at it in a life cycle and say, you know, the real goal is to be able to die peacefully. You know, to live our life fully. And then, you know, you hear people say stuff like this all the time, just in general, right? It's like to die without regret. Thank you so much for making it to the end of this episode. Please subscribe, rate, and review our show and help us share yoga therapy with more people around the world. If you think this episode will help someone you know, feel free to share it with them. If you love yoga therapy and meditation, you can follow us over on Instagram at breathingdeeplyyoga, where we share anything and everything to help you advance your understanding of yoga therapy and meditation. For more information about our yoga therapy and meditation trainings and programs, visit breathingdeeply.com. See you in the next episode.